What's up, Energy fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but before we keep going, I want to make an announcement to tell everyone about my new sponsor, Inflow Control. They're a technology company dedicated to improving the efficiency of oil recovery while simultaneously reducing the industry's environmental impact using autonomous inflow control valve technology, also known as AICV. This breakthrough technology improves oil production by reducing unwanted gas and water, which enables mature oil fields to be more profitable by supporting oil productions from zones that would have typically been bypassed. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or simply check them out on LinkedIn or at inflowcontrol.no. Thanks. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. I'm here in Zoomland with Bloomberg NEF senior contributor, Nat Ballard. Nat, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Where in the world are you joining me from today? Justin, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm joining you from a home office, uh, about 10 minutes walk from Union Station in Washington, D.C. Okay. When you said Union Station, I almost said Denver, but I know according to LinkedIn, it says you're from up north. Uh, on the there's, east. There's, a lot of un- there's a lot of Union Stations in a lot of different cities, right? So, uh, yeah, there's a reason for that. Um, but no, I'm in, I'm in the one where, you know, at least uh, back in the day when I was doing a whole bunch of day trips to New York City, I could walk out the door, go to the train station, and be up and back in the course of a day. No, I, I love it. So are you, do you frequent the the trains then, being that you're yes. so close? Yes, um, I, I am a habitual Sela and Northeast Corridor train rider, um, although I have to say that one of the impacts of COVID these days is a reduced schedule, uh, which kind of sucks in terms of trying to do the up and back in one day, which I used to excel at. Uh, but... You know, we finally sort of caught up with, I would say, the late 20th century in terms of booking <laughs> technology. And yeah. you can now walk onto the train with an assigned seat instead of basically sit okay. in a rugby scrum waiting <laughs> to be yelled at to find out where your gate is and then yeah. hoofing it to get there. Nice. Yeah. The last time I was on a train uh, was actually in Europe. I took the train and this was about four years ago now, almost five, uh, going from paris to london or no london to paris i believe anyway it was it was a cool experience definitely not like the new york subways or anything like that but i'm not i don't have too much experience with the the whole uh train station i do when i'm in denver travel from the airport downtown they've they've got that set up nicely but uh there's there's always interesting stories on the train and and again this is super random but what do you have any wild stories that you've you experienced while being on the train up there uh any Anything stories here on the train? Not really. But when I did live in Hong Kong, I would routinely find myself like one of the very first people to ever ride on a high-speed rail line that had just opened up in China. Okay. So uh, one of my favorites was taking a trip from uh, from Huangshan, means the Yellow Mountain, uh, which is in Anhui province, up to Beijing uh, on, a, on a trip with family. And the train was brand new, like spotless hardware. It ran Mm. absolutely flawlessly, but they had done no catering effort yet. And so the only thing that I had to eat for the entire train ride was a 
very intensely flavored beef gelatin cube, which is a kind of snack that you can get and trains and at train stations uh, around China, but that oh. does not a meal make. So uh, <laughs> like quick one tease, of the, that's about ex it. Ex exactly. Um, I've also I've also got a, a bit of experience in the Japanese trains, which are extraordinary. Um, and at okay. least in the recent past, were generally so reliable that if the train was late, the conductor would give you a note to take to the office to give to your manager to verify that the reason you were late is not because you were hungover or because you missed the train, but simply because the train was 90 seconds late or something like that. No way. I find it fascinating <laughs> the way the rest of the world, you know, just uses transportation services. Uh, it I is, it is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I, like if, if Houston had a real, cause I'm here in Houston, originally from West coast, Canada, but being here in Houston, the big city, everyone drives texting. It's nuts. If only they could have train uh, or rail services here, I just think it would make things so much more efficient. But again, I don't want to make yep. this into a you know a, a rain convers or a, a train conversation. <laughs> um, I you know again I digress. But uh, firstly, I do want to take a quick moment to give a shout out to our buddy Rob Barnett. He's actually how I came across your content. Uh, he's an absolute beauty. Just a great guy, genuine character, a ton of experience in energy space. So if anyone out there is interested in just kind of keeping your finger on the pulse of, of all things energy, Rob Barnett has, puts out a, a bunch of great content. I met I met him during graduate school, and uh, I just want to give him a shout out because he's how I actually stumbled across your you got to get You've got to get Rob on the show. I did. Um, I did. You did get him on the show? When was so, it? I must have missed it. Oh, it was maybe like the sixth or seventh episode because I, I oh deep I, in the back catalog then okay yeah and uh and and so real quick on that it was hilarious it was actually the first time he had worn a suit um since covid i, I and he was sitting mm -hmm. in bloomberg's i think one of their lounging areas and so he did it from his from his phone which it actually turned out really well but uh yeah i i had him on and, and we had a, just an overall good conversation about energy and all the fun stuff that you know the outlook for uh well i think it was about q4 at that time uh, going into Q4, but anyway, uh, just a, just a great guy, and and uh, everyone that I you know that he's connected me to has just been absolutely wonderful. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna put in a plug for him, Barnett yeah. Energy on Twitter. Yes, um, I always thought it was a missed opportunity for him to use Barnett Shale as his handle. <laughs> he didn't go for it. Yeah, um, there is also, of course, a very well known climate tech investor at Energy Impact Partners named Shale. And I always wanted to huh. have Barnett and Shale together on a show. So if you're ever really feeling it, <laughs> may I give a plug to get those two together and you'll have right. quite a lineup. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. So the first thing I have to ask, and don't worry, everyone, we'll dive into energy here. But I, you know, I, I noticed these things. But when I went onto your LinkedIn or even your Twitter, I looked you up and I couldn't help but click the sci-fi style banner and try to figure out what that tall building was in the valley. And I was had you know, these thoughts and things is is that something you drew or found on google or just give the high level elevator you, on what you that would, is you would it, you'd be surprised what a talking point that has become Man, actually it's, for it's multiple cool podcasts before um, okay. yeah so it's it is a, a it is a drawing by a, a graphic artist uh, and a designer named Sid Mead who only recently passed away Sid Mead okay. is a legend he did the design work for Blade Runner and for Tron. And he was an ah. auto design. He was an auto designer by training. And okay. what you see there is one of the images from a portfolio that he did for us steel, the steel maker in the sixties. 
and it was called Portfolio of Probabilities. And basically it was, okay, legendary designer and futurist, give us a sense for what the deep future is going to look like. No So way. the subtext, how much steel is going to be involved in stuff? And the answer is a lot. So yeah. for those of you out there in radio land listening to Wicked Energy, please check out Sid Mead's Portfolio of Probabilities. Hard to find in hard copy. I've been looking for a long time. A fantastic visual portfolio, but it's really instructive. And I've used a lot of his images before in talks that I've done going back now at least a half a decade. Because wow. in particular for things like, like for things like transport, it's amazing how little the vision has changed of like road surface transport. Uh, you know, basically concept cars today look not that much different from a concept car from the 60s when they were doing a really futuristic look. Yeah. Uh, there's still there's still four still four wheels, you know, still <laughs> a bunch of glass domes and bubbles and stuff like that. But yeah. yeah, it's a really cool image. I wish I could claim it as my own, but it's one of my favorites. Well, it's just it just captured my attention. It's it's kind of mysterious, old school, but futuristic at the same time. Uh, anyway, I just I had to ask. But anyway, um, one last thing I do want to mention before we dive in is I I would love to tell everyone about our new sponsor, Inflow Control. They are a technology company that helps oil companies improve the efficiency of oil production while reducing the industry's environmental impact with their autonomous inflow control valve technology. This breakthrough technology improves oil production by reducing unwanted gas and water, which enables mature fields to be more profitable by supporting oil production from zones that would have typically been bypassed. This provides oil companies with and its stakeholders with lower carbon oil and higher profitability. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. Um, so Nat, you've clearly demonstrated your passion for climate tech, finance, economics, um, but real quick, when did you realize this was a, a passion for yours to which then led to you, I mean, spending a good chunk of your life pursuing this this type of this this industry, essentially? It's been a bit of a garden of forking paths to get here. But um, in my first job outside of college, I went to Egypt and I was a teacher for an international school in Cairo. And it was a fascinating uh look at the sort of distributions in general around the world. My students at the time were paying somewhere around three times the per capita GDP uh, to attend the school. And there were sometimes large families with multiple kids like that. So imagine spending, you know, a half a million dollars or maybe three quarters of a million dollars a year to send your kids to high school. That was the kind of demographic that I was working with. Whoa. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there were there were people outside who um, essentially, you know, herded goats or uh, I also herded turkeys, which I realize sounds funny, but they were essentially herding flocks of turkeys around <laughs> okay. who basically lived in the desert full time. And there was this this great divide between them and a lot of the divide, even though Egypt is quite fully electrified, was around energy oh. access and energy consumption. And in 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 Egypt the bulk of the power was coming from thermal sources at the time, despite the fact that it is obviously a place with an exceptional solar and an exceptional wind resource. And I was just very interested in beginning to think of how to sort of square the circle in the long run of, uh, you know, in, in, in enhanced and perpetual human development and betterment, uh, which runs obviously through greater primary energy per person. And, 
the challenge of doing so in a way that was going to be sustainable in the long run. Um, you know, one thing that we I think has proven very clear in the last couple of decades, largely driven by the patch here in the U.S., is that I think we te- we should probably not always think about fundamental limits at the molecular field reservoir level mm-hmm. as the determining step. Cost might be available, might be availability, might be, but access is not necessarily guaranteed. And this is at a time when you know we're starting to see technologies emerge that are driving down some cost curves that are pretty significant. That would mm-hmm. be solar in particular, but also wind. Um, and eventually on their way to, to making their own market. So I went to grad school, I studied energy policy. And by the time I came out of that, this is mid 2000s, it was a moment where actually there were very few people, relatively speaking, with like an academic background in studying like energy access and, and energy economics. But there was an increasing need for that kind of that 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 kind of skill set in analyzing this big set of system changes that were on their way. So that was when you know that was when Germany had introduced its feed-in tariff for wind and solar, basically mm-hmm. starting the contemporary business of these of these industries. China was beginning to support its manufacturing sector. There was beginning to be a lot of venture capital, private equity investment in projects and assets and in business models. And it just felt like an exciting time because, you know, if you squint a little bit, you can see the growth paths there towards some technologies really taking off, becoming materially significant. There are some things in that time that didn't quite pan out as as I think even I had expected them at the time, which would be things like solar thermal electricity rather than photovoltaic. There were things that were just a glimmer in the eye. I mean, I, I was doing this work huh before the Tesla Roadster existed. You know, when the you know when the, the electric vehicle that people think about in the United States was the old EV1, a compliance vehicle that got scrapped on purpose uh, when its compliance purpose was finished. You know, and so that's something that has taken off. I don't think I would have imagined we'd have come as far as we have on a pure volume basis with all these technologies. But it's been an exciting run and I, and and we're really you know, if we think about it exponentially, we're now getting into the very interesting next couple of decades of watching a big system that has served us very well on an energy basis, maybe not necessarily on a climate basis, change yeah. itself around new technology, orient itself around technology and not just resource yes. uh, and and around business model and not just trade flows and things like that. Yeah, no, it's, again, I... I mean, it, it appears to me just looking at trends and patterns and, and observations that the rate at which a lot of these technologies are being developed and deployed uh, is just going to continue to accelerate, which again, just I think presents so much opportunity for on so many different levels. Yeah. But I'm curious, because you, you've been in that space for so long, um, do you have any core beliefs that you've changed your mind on? focused around energy over the last few years does anything have yet any sort of principle shifts or paradigm shifts if you will that, yeah it's a great question actually justin and it's one that's one that i i don't think i often get asked in such a cogent fashion so let me see if i can give a good cogent answer to it <laughs> i alluded a moment ago to, to solar thermal so when i when i was when i was starting my analytical work not just sort of information collection this is at a time when you when you had a rare moment of data clarity around a new technology 
And you also had an even more rare moment of sort of competing forces in technologies offering, at least on the margin, a similar or identical service. So you had PV modules, solar photovoltaics, which have been around since the 60s. You know, they were put in satellites at that point. They had their main commercial terrestrial operations for oil and gas, sensor networks, offshore buoys. Uh, they were on their way, though, through a manufacturing process that was increasing in scale, increasing in efficiency, decreasing in cost, you know, following a familiar trend from automobiles, from electronics, from semiconductors. And then you had another technology, uh, solar thermal, which is exactly what it suggests, collecting solar radiation as heat, not as photons, and using them to then drive basically a plant stack that looks very familiar for any thermal plant operator. Downstream of all of the heat being collected, a system that has boilers, condensers, it's got a turbine, it's got all of these things. And they were very different in sort of how they grew. One of them grew by getting smaller by doing, or by doing more, by doing more, by iterating. That's the, the photovoltaic side. The other grew by getting bigger, you know, though you gained efficiency by being bigger in size. Um, and you also had a sort of bifurcation of who it was that was promoting these things. A lot of the developers of photovoltaic assets, former real estate people, real strivers, very hard to do that kind of development for solar thermal when your ticket size was starting, you know, 500 million to a billion dollars. So you had the entry of large uh, independent power producers, really big engineering procuring contracting firms. And they were both fundamentally targeting the same thing in the California desert, which is I want to sell solar electrons at a cost. I'm probably going to lease some government, some government land from the Bureau of Land Management. I need 5,000 acres of it. I'll be building this thing over a couple of years. And this is the price that I think I'm going to sell it at. And may a thousand flowers bloom and watch them compete. <laughs> what was fascinating is that if you went into the meetings that where these companies are sort of assembled, the PV, the, the, the photovoltaic folks were very intensely aware of like the cost curves that they were riding. They're like, if I buy my modules now, it's going to be this, but if I buy in a year, it's going to be that it's going to be cheaper. I can actually essentially develop, and this is not uncommon. You can develop in advance of your assumed economics, provided you can get the surety to do a contract. The thermal folks were like, look, I have a giant balance sheet. I'm going to go get my turbine from one of the five companies that make steam turbines. You're going to have to work with me because I'm big and I'm good. And mm -hmm. I don't view the PV side as competition. I'm a, I'm firm electrons. I can meet your peak and shoulder demand. Uh, we'll have a full EPC wrap. Everything's going to be great. You're going to have to work with us in the long run. What you had eventually was this asymmetric competition because you had this one small technology that was rapidly going down in the good way, all of its cost curves. And you had another one that was driven by mega project economics. And you know, right. I, I'm sure that you know mega project economics. The first one, it's always late, it's always over budget. And the way to work <laughs> past the way to work past that is to do a bunch of them, right? A good yeah. example would be, you know, an analogy here would be, you know, a stripper well versus deep water offshore. <laughs> Right. Yeah, you know, sure. yep. like you're doing you're doing these things on different you're delivering the same product, but you're doing them on different timelines, different teams, different skill sets. Yes. And the reality is that I walked into this thinking that the big established EPC heavy IPP heavy technology was going to be the winner for all of these sort of attributes that they talked about. 
but they never managed to deliver on cost. And they were fighting not just the sort of the the sort of relative target of what the grid wanted, but the absolute target of what all these other companies were going to do. And so by the time they got to market, you found the PV technologies much cheaper and better, and also with a great deal of cost discovery, like very clear what price things were going to sell at. And then you saw eventually the fact that they would get bigger in scale, they would get better at power management, they would start to integrate batteries. This is a long way of saying that it, it, it's given me forever a sort of deep appreciation for the highly distributed technologies and how they can change an incumbent landscape, but mm. also for the challenges of doing things that on paper are just rich with kind of attributes that an energy system should really like, but in reality run into mega project challenges and exposure to multiple vectors at once, like currencies, commodities, labor, inflation, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the the whole solar topic and and a lot of the data and you know, the, the levelized cost of, of energy for everything. It, to me, again, I, I'm kind of like looking in the house party through the blinds. I don't, I don't really have an inside scoop of everything that goes yeah. on aside from just the Twitter feeds and some of the, the credible sources that I follow. But I mean, do we simply, I mean, I guess what your take is a lot of, it, it does do, it does a lot of what people's are that they're hoping and that, you know, that, are we actually going to get to a point where we can fully deploy at scale solar with considering, you know, uh, cost, maybe not so much, but just supply chain challenges being, you know, so reliant on say folks like in China to manufacture a lot of these goods. Uh, it just, and, and then, you know, on top of that, um, you know, just the energy input, required to manufacture mm -hmm. a lot of these solar panels. I mean, on a macro level, where do you think that the biggest limiter is and how do you suppose that, and I say we, let's just call it here in the US, are going to overcome yeah. that? This is a really good question because I think there's an inherent tendency, especially in integrated assessment model thinking, to apply a limiting step. Right. To sort of operating the assumption that like, obviously these growth rates can't keep on going forever. Like it sounds ridiculous. Sure. But Every person who input a limiter on their integrated assessment models has ended up being laughed at a couple of years later. Right. We're going to do okay. like last year, last year, we probably did 268 gigawatts worth of solar installed globally, which is an extraordinary number. Um, in terms of the, the upstream capacity by 2025, there'll be enough polysilicon and that's by far the most important part of the stack. There'll be enough polysilicon to make about 940 gigawatts of modules every year. So it's actually a thing that is probably in terms of like deploying at get us to net zero scale for that technology. It's actually pretty close okay. to being there. Now, the big questions are like the downstream of it. Like, are you going to put it on every commercial rooftop in Houston? I mean, I'm looking, I can see behind you <laughs> many acres worth of dead space that really should be covered up as an energy asset. Sure. But you have, you, but you know what? I'm I'm well aware of Houston. I'll be there next week. You also need to think about wind loading. You've got to think about what's going to happen when a quadrillion gallons of water drops on them uh, in another <laughs> hurricane. You've got to deal with yeah all kinds of all kinds of other factors along the way. But they're I wouldn't call them non-technical, but they're not like fundamental science technical. 
As far as energy inputs, yes. Like uh, the biggest input to making uh, solar is electricity. But of course, you can decarbonize your electricity supply and the, you know, in, in search of doing that. The truth is not many people are doing that right now. But the more nuanced view on that is also that, you know, the energy return on energy invested means that the payback for whatever energy you consumed in making it is paid back quite quickly in a couple of years. And the other thing is we haven't really tested, this is fascinating, we haven't really tested the limits of capability for most of the solar in the world because it's nowhere close to the end of its natural life. In the same way that we're just sort of figuring out what the end of the natural life for an EV battery is going to be. Like sure. they still work. Um, I've got a friend who was in the Gulf and actually has an old, I mean, like 1970s era Shell solar PV module when Shell was making solar that yeah. was attached to a, uh, that was attached to a, uh, a monitoring station on a pipeline. And he said, it's not, he, he has it on his wall as a decoration. And he said, but if you, he's like, but if you ever attach a wire to it, like it still generates power. Like it's the no worst. Yeah. So like it hasn't broken. Like it's very hard to break these things. Yeah. And so we haven't really tested what the end of the cycle is going to be like, what recycling is going to be like and things like that. But I would say the 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 the, the most helpful approach here has been to sort of suspend disbelief. Because every time you said, well, the market can never get bigger than 50 gigawatts a year, or it's never going to be bigger than 100 or 250 or whatever. The result has been that Oddly, like nobody in the industry actually pays any attention to that kind of stuff because right. they're like, well, I'm, they're like, I make my money manufacturing. So I'm going to do the highest quality, the highest efficiency at the lowest cost that I can. And I'm going to try to crowd out the market. <laughs> and if you're a developer, you're like, well, my job is to move as much as I possibly can in my market. And I really don't care what you tell me about the U.S. solar market. I deal in ERCOT West. So mm -hmm. like, I'm just going to get busy. Like, it, it's actually really funny that like, while I live well within the world of like mod modeling and assessments and long-term outcomes, the reality on the ground is that because this is so highly distributed, people are incentivized to act. And this is a positive thing to act essentially selfishly, develop as much as they can, lowest cost they possibly can for the highest margins they can get. Mm -hmm. And so all of these questions are, are oddly sort of academic because sure. the actual market is an aggregation of tens of thousands of strategic decisions that everybody makes while while largely ignoring a lot of the sort of macro things that people talk about yeah. in terms of looking for limits to growth for looking to, and look for looking at limits to scale and things like that again i have to say that the shale patch has got to be a good analogy for this Right. I mean, like like when 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 people were wildcatting, starting off hydraulic fracturing, was there anybody sitting down in the field and saying, yeah, well, you know, deep water offshore is coming in 15 years, so maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Right. Yeah. It no. just doesn't even cross their mind. I see. And that's that's interesting. Like it's such a fascinating perspective as someone who's, you know, plays in that sandbox a lot more regularly than myself. Um with you know before we move away from the solar topic i'm curious here in the us do you suspect that residential like where do you see the most growth coming say within the next 5 to 8 years is it going to be like everyone and their dog have solar panels on top of their roofs given the right you know you know 
area within, you know, if the, yeah. they get enough sunshine or is it going to be where we're going to create these solar farms to where places like where I'm at right now are going to then be run off solar? Like, where do you see a lot of the growth? It's a good, in- qu- good question. Unfortunately, I'm not that close these days to how the, the intricacies of the U.S. market are working. The basic Fair answer enough. is that they're all going to be growing. Right. Uh, One thing that I would say is a big impetus right now is much higher power prices. Uh, And in particular, outrunning inflation for specific sectors like industrial and commercial, you know, like industrial and commercial power is running not only hotter than inflation, but hotter than residential costs as well. And so that's having that's giving people a lot of interest and impetus to say, all right, I'm going to go ahead and do a a solar system to sort of defray my costs Uh, at the utility level. There's there's plenty of interest, I think, because it is actually fairly difficult to build other kinds of assets. It's not easy, mind you, to build solar or wind um, Mm -hmm. in particular, where they need a lot of transmission. But it's also not easy to try to go build a new gas plant necessarily. Um, and so, and so, you know, and, and it's impossible to build a new coal plant and building new nuclear, I think medium term, I'm actually fairly, fairly confident that we'll start to see some really cool new techs roll out. It takes time. It takes money. And to return to my, 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 you know, er, earlier statement, you know, when you run towards mega project economics, you have to remember that the first things are always going to run late and they're going to run, they're going to run uh, over budget. And so, I think that there, there's just a, there's a lot of interest right now and a lot of inherent uh, tailwind behind a lot of these techs in different markets. I yeah. where I live, people put solar on the roof all the time. I got it on my roof. It's interesting. There's almost no advertising for it except like a little yard sign that people put out, right? Yeah. And sometimes you'll have like different vendors next to each other. But look, it's what I kind of tell you. It's been great. Um, I print a negative bill like six months out of the year. And when I do get a bill, I, I like I, I got a bill the other day, and it was for six dollars and fifty seven cents. So like I, it's a, it's not it's not nothing. The challenge is that like, um, that's defraying. You know, that's defraying four figures of of expenses a year, but it also requires five figures of investment to get to that point. Right? Well, and this is this yeah, this is a challenge, right? Right. Um, it's, it's what's the upfront cost? Because that's that's a, you know again for the a lot of the generalists, which you know I I could put myself in that bucket uh so to speak is oh well you know what's the payback period right it's like if i spend x amount of dollars but i'm saving x amount on my price like i have to stay in my house for eight years and you know i've I've learned that there's actually programs out there that that help that and, and again i don't want to make this just strictly on solar but it's it's a fascinating no. topic which i think deserves attention um but but again that's just kind of the, the let me, let me give you i'll give you one more one more great and like the probably the best insight i've heard on on that and on thinking about the distributional impacts of, of technologies like this. Uh, in 2011, I had a chance to meet a guy named Harish Hande, who runs he's, he runs in India something called the Solar Electric Light Company, and he you know he sells electric solar powered electric lanterns um, on a financing plan. And what he said is like oh. that this business exists purely because my customers uh, cannot come up with 300 uh, rupees per day. But they, you know, in one day, but they have no problem coming up with 10, uh, 10 rupees per day over the course of the month. Like basically, I have to bridge the fact that they don't have the money to invest is one chunk of cash, but they definitely have income that over time can defray this cost of an expense. So he's basically bridge, bridging, uh, 
people who have enough money for OPEX, but not money for CAPEX. Let's put it that way. And it's the yeah. biggest challenge for all these new technologies is that they're CAPEX heavy. You know, if you had to finance, if you had to finance a well and you had to finance 85% of the, of the net present value of that well all up front, it would be very, very difficult to make it happen. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's that's a great analogy. I'm, I'm sure that yeah. that resonates with a lot of people. We're I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot. Um, sure. We talked a little bit about electricity. We got several topics, and I want to respect your time. I know you you know what I mean we got a lot a lot of great nuggets here, and it, I feel like just all of a sudden time's flying by. But time is flying. It is. Um, let's talk about the implication of of continuously elevated natural gas prices. Um, we've seen a you know it, Henry Hub was sitting at about eight eighty. Um, you know, back in August. Now we're sitting around that, you know, five and a half dollar mark, but looking at, you know, EIA forecasts and, and a lot of the models showing as long as demand continues to stay where it's at, which or likely increase, that's going to result in elevated gas prices. Let's talk a little about that. What's sort of your thoughts around that? And then we can kind of dive deeper into some other questions. So not a not a deep expert on this, but I think it's really important. First of all, like the 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 old timer me is laughing at the fact that 880 is a high gas price, right? <laughs> yeah, because what I think wasn't it like it was 14. 14 yeah. back in 05 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um and and there are many stories of the long-term strategic planning that was done around that expectation of prices, such as planning to have a bunch of LNG import terminals in the US, for instance, mm -hmm. or planning to expand coal-fired power fleets in Texas uh, and in the Southeast because gas was considered volatile and high-priced. So as an aside, it's funny for me to think about these prices as being high, right? Right. But, well, thankfully, but, the shale revolution helped that. Well, it did. It, 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 it completely changed uh, the US energy landscape and i'm most familiar with power but you, you and your listeners will know very well how much it changed in industry as well and in pet chems especially to have gas come gas come in abundance and at low price but yeah the, when we were talking before we went live um, i mentioned that the dallas fed has an energy survey that it runs uh, every quarter and one of their questions to the the participants was like do you think that we're the the end of the end of the era of cheap gas and most of the participants said yes and probably by 2025 and you know there's a couple of factors one it just you know is would be the the pure upstream of it the other would be the fact that we are now the world's largest lng exporter like last yeah. year tied with cutter which is pretty crazy uh means that it will be impossible on an economic basis to not add some margin between Henry Hub and whatever price it's going to land at in Japan, in Korea, in Germany, you know, yeah. markets will true themselves up. This has already happened in Australia and in a way that completely changed the energy landscape of Australia when Australia went from being, this sounds silly, but a gas island because obviously, but, uh, yeah. but the, but when it went to, to exporting the true up of domestic prices closer towards the export price was essentially a deindustrialization impetus in the country. And what's it going to do here in the US? Well, higher gas prices, you know, look on the margin, maybe you have more coal-fired power uh than gas, you know, where they compete in a big grid like PJM here in the Mid-Atlantic or in ERCOT where there's still some coal. Um it would definitely impact industry. 
You know, are you going to be able to run ethylene crackers, you know, at this at the same margin that you used to, you know, with two dollar or three dollar gas? Um, and it might it might also inspire a lot more work on the sort of technological frontier to come up with either uh, new ways, you know, ways to make methane, like processes to make methane using ambient atmosphere and energy inputs, uh, or to electrify processes that might have already been run on gas. And I'm thinking here particularly of heat. This is kind of a sleeper, honestly. I feel like a lot of people are not really looking at this very closely. And that's because we don't have a huge analog for it yet in this market. And look, we've been in, you know, we've, we've been in like a, a very thorough running, uh, relatively low cost gas environment for a long time in the US. And a lot of stuff has been built around that expectation. Yeah. No. So do you think with the whole, you know, Russia, Ukraine, uh invasion and war and, and however else you want to label it uh i mean it, do you think it's fundamentally changed the global gas markets yes well i think that i think that it would be very hard if if com if 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 conflict were to cease tomorrow mm -hmm. i think it would be extremely difficult to convince western europe that russia is a good counterparty for 40 to 50 to whatever percent of its gas demand. Right. Yeah. Uh that's notwithstanding the fact that Nord Stream one of the Nord Stream pipelines has been blown up. So it like actually <laughs> yeah. won't work. Like if there's there there will not be an opportunity to actually use it. Sure. So I I I think that that's absolutely true. You're going to see one um in in an import shift which is already happening to the US. But you're going to see import substitution. Maybe I, it's unlikely that Groningen and in, in, in the Netherlands is going to start up again. But you will also see substitution by technology. This is why people use heat pumps now. This is why why you see heat pump deployment going bonkers all over Europe. But also where you're going to see, I think, uh, a lot of a lot of desire to do more renewable energy to electrify industrial processes that used to run on gas. Yeah, and I just I think I think this is probably a very sharp shock with a very long set of repercussions that will play out over decades. But I mean, it's 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 like jumping, if you want to call it energy transition, it's jumping that forward by like at least a decade in terms yeah. of what's expected to happen. And look, the U.S. is doing all of this gas export with Freeport still out of commission. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's it's pretty amazing that that gas has this capability to meet the market. And then there's also the fact that uh, the 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 sort of sad reality of like an extremely warm climate change driven winter has meant that gas demand has been quite low yeah. in Europe. Germany is running well ahead of the storage that uh, it had it had expected to have at this time of year, yeah. largely because it's been warm, right? Um, so climate change has been your friend on one side of the ledger, uh, <laughs> which sure. with yeah. conflict in Europe. But obviously, you know, if that continues, that will cause its own set of disruptions and disturbances. Uh, and, you know, emissions issues coming from more carbon dioxide, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's going to be a challenge to manage. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex, I think a very interesting thing to watch. And I would urge those of us here in the continental US and North American general 
to think about what has happened to other gas islands when exports began, especially what happened in Australia. Yeah, no, it's it's a good, again, it's the energy system in itself is a very complex natural gas. The, the, those markets um, are, are ones that, you know, we pay attention to here, you know, in, in my line of, of, uh, of, of what I do, but I'm curious before we shift on to the next topic um, for here in the U S because we are sitting on such large reserves. I mean, we've got an abundance of gas. We've got some constraints in the Northeast with takeaway capacity pipeline yep. you know, infrastructure. That's kind of, you know, um, but there is, I think, three major LNG export facilities uh, that are, you know, I think under construction are about to be to, to increase our export capacity. But if we continue to produce, and let's just say we do increase supply to where gas prices do come down a little bit, to that make it favorable to lean on, say, natural gas for, uh, you know, power? Do you think that'll impact the growth of renewables? Or do you think it's, I mean, because ultimately the price of gas and say oil somewhat, do they dictate or, or are people so the, not really worried about Oil that? has almost nothing to do with the price of, of power these days. It used right. to, because we used to have a lot of oil-fired power. Yeah. Gas, for sure. You know, gas sets the margin in most of the big markets. But a high gas price just means that your renewables are more in the money. So, sure. you know, like, like and, 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 and you'll find, I think, at a sort of like economy-wide level, you know, a pretty sophisticated assessment of where is that molecule more valuable? You know, like, is it more valuable in pet chems, in power? What part of power is it valuable in? Is it valuable for peak power versus baseload power? You know, um, the thing is, you know, the input is methane. The output is an electron. And there are lots of ways to output an electron, right? And a bunch of them these days don't have a fuel cost. You know, so I think that I think that the the short answer is like more expensive gas means more renewables. Like that's just pretty much a given. Yeah, um, but it might be yeah. massive everything else for sure. And and I guess the, what I was thinking is if we can increase su supply of gas, it'll drive down pricing to yeah. where if, right if, right know, and, and to it's, where it's know, like it, oh, is, why yeah. would we spend the money on renewables if our electricity bills are back to what they were you know in yeah, two thousand fourteen? But people make long term planning assessments for sure. You know, the thing is, is like you can't like like. The model has a clean overnight capital cost, but the reality is not that. You know, the reality is it's five to seven, maybe 10 years to get something done. And so people tend to invest along a vector in that case, you know, and 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 so that's that's where I feel like the the investment decision definitely trends towards renewables. Makes sense. So lastly, uh on the energy front, how how should we as as general population be thinking about? climate technology you spend a lot of time in this world um you know again we, we sort of started talking about it before we hit record here but 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 what's your sort of stance and sort of message to folks out there on that front i like this question I'm, and i'm glad you asked it because it's, it's where i spend most of my time these days is on the, the very front end you know i spent 15 15 years working at that like integrated assessment model go talk to the chief economist level and one of the real pleasures of, of my time now is unwinding all of that and dealing at the um, two graduate students with a PowerPoint level of thinking about what the, you know, what the future might look like. <laughs> yeah. So my, my, my lesson is, is that, you know, we're, we're into uh, a new and I think fairly durable wave of investing in climate technologies at the early stage. And that's because we've had some great successes, you know, wind, solar, uh, batteries, I would say electrolyzers are on their way electrolyzers for making hydrogen are on their way. 
to being these great distributed technology successes. They've shown people what can be done. They're also, those are the outputs of previous investment waves that are now the inputs to the current one. Um, there's a willingness to tackle a lot of hard challenges that would have been considered outside of scope 10, 15 years ago. So looking at things that are not just, I would say, not just physics problems like in power, but chemistry problems like in in, 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 in pet chems or chemicals rather, <laughs> in, in food, in materials and things like that. There's also a really big wave of human capital that has come along of mm -hmm. people who now are either native to climate. I, I, we talked earlier, I'm a venture partner at a fund called Voyager where the two founding managing partners have got a combined 30 years of experience uh, investing in planning, uh, operating in climate technology. That couldn't be found 10 years ago. It was impossible. No kidding. So yeah. we, we, we now have people with expertise that are ready to go. And we have people that I would also say are, are coming at this as not only the reality that they live in today, but their expectation of the future. Their expectation is I'm going to build a company to get us, uh, you know, to net zero by the middle of the century. And that's pretty, wow. that's pretty exciting. So I think my lesson is you you still have to know your science, like <laughs> things that don't work scientifically or don't work at all. I think <laughs> you need to be aware of market dynamics, you know, determining determining what the limitations to a business model or technology might be that are oftentimes not necessarily a limit of fundamental capital availability or a limit of, you know, actual molecular equations, but are of planning and permission or the difficulty of building a plant or understanding how your counterparties are going to work. You cannot abstract those things away. Um, but at the same time, sort of everything is in play. You know, it, when I began doing this work, we were sort of in an era of, of renewable energy, small specialist team, even if they're in a big company, there's probably only a couple of them, very scrappy, doing small assets, the financing is bespoke. It's one-on-one -on -one custom stuff. You know, a couple of years later, we're in a kind of an energy transition era where big companies say, all right, I'm going to get to net zero in three decades in part of my business. You know, part of my portfolio, I can do that. Right. More senior people looking at that from an operational and a strategic level. Maybe you've got like a something, something officer who looks after it. But if we go into net zero world, which is, I think, and I hope where we're going then basically everything is in play. There's no part of your business that isn't impacted. Yeah. There's no sector that isn't fundamentally transformed. Uh, there's no operational level of your company where you can just not think about it or ignore it. Um, and increasingly, you're going to have you know, um, a new executive cohort that has that expectation that, you know, that again, is sort of native to that expectation. And so it's going to be a big change. It's something that I'm spending a lot of time working on is the kind of cognitive way that we will organize ourselves around net zero and the business strategy, not just the, we need to build X much of Y in Z time, but we need <laughs> right. to create, we need to create teams, structures, uh, opportunity sets within our companies where we can make these things happen meaningfully. Wow. Well, it's, again, I feel like we may have just scratched the surface and, and in the interest of time, um, that's going to be on, on the question front. But Nat, I mean, 
again, we, we sort of, we sort of touched on many different topics here. And for the listeners, I really encourage you to connect um, and, and follow Nat's content. Uh, Twitter is where you spend, I think, a good portion of your yeah, time. These days, still there. Yeah, yeah but I mean, just <laughs> haven't, haven't of, taken off yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating, um, just the amount of information and, and value that you provide to the platform. So thank you for everything that you do Pleasure. on that front. Um, is, there, is there any other, uh, I guess, do you, do you play in other sandboxes on the social media front that, that you'd like to relay? No, I post some stuff on LinkedIn and then I write every week. I got a piece that runs every Thursday um, for Bloomberg. Uh, easy to sign up, easy to find me, easy to sign up for it. Uh, it's free and outside the paywall, which for those of you who are familiar with Bloomberg, uh, not a lot of things are free and outside of the paywall. So yeah. go ahead and find it there. And yeah, uh, yeah the, the, best, the best thing I get to do is stuff like this, you know, have yeah. a very smart conversation. Uh, and hopefully provide some insights that are useful for everybody out there in wicked energy land. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, Nat. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the year. And Thank for you. all the listeners, thanks for listening. And uh, just a reminder, uh, you know, I've got a little partnership going with the Oil Patch, which is your daily energy news fix, five minutes or less. Think of the hustle morning brew for energy. So please do them a favor, subscribe or hit the link in the show notes. Nat, uh, again, can't thank you enough. And for everyone out there, always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.